Welcome to Speak with Ibukun. This is a podcast where guests can share their stories and delve into how they came through their journey in life, who and what they encountered along the way, and where they are now. The Decade series continues where guests will share their recollections of decades they have lived and the one they are in now. Welcome back to Speak with Ibukun. I am with the lovely Zainab, also known as Titi here. We didn't actually finish off in the third decade, Zainab. We were around 25. You had gone back to New York to train to be a pastry chef. So by the time I was in culinary school, 27. 27. Okay. 2007. Okay. Did anything else happen around that age before you went into your fourth decade? I was now in my late 20s. Going to culinary school was like, I had to give this all or nothing because England had proven to not be as kind to me in terms of career-wise as I would have thought. And emotionally too, because I was around my family, I didn't go off, do my own thing. I struggled a lot emotionally for the two years that I was only in London for two years, felt like 10, but a lot happened in those two years. So by the time I got myself together and got enrolled in culinary school, went back to New York, I was 27. And so in 2008, I culinary school was one of the best experiences I had in my entire life wow. today because, oh my goodness, it was being creative in culinary arts. On a, on a, it felt like a world stage, learning on a world stage, because I had I had Chef Alain Saliak. All the chefs on Food Network were my instructors, wow. all of them. Bobby Flay, just name a pastry chef or a culinary chef, and they were all there. I met, it was like a celebrity school, because all of them had shows on Food Network. Wow. I, I, I volunteered, or I was with them several times prepping for the shows at Food Network. So it was a very um, Hollywood, fantabulous lifestyle, which I, that matches my personality. So it was very exciting. And I just knew that even if I didn't end up having my own show, which a lot of people said you'd be great as a food show personality because of your personality mm-hmm. and your talent, I knew that this was my ticket to just go and be ex- expressive, and this could feed me because the chef industry was really taking off from being just a glorified cook to being, there's a lot of stardom. Mm-hmm. So you can make a lot of money depending on what you did um, with it. And so once I finished, before I finished, as soon as I started culinary school, I was like, okay, I'm not going to let what happened with architecture happen this time. So I started looking for work after school so that I could secure something that would keep me on. In the state. For sure, this time. And with food, come on. Healthcare and food industry, there's always work. And if they're not trying to sponsor anybody else, they will sponsor someone that can cook, you know? Mm-hmm. So it just felt like, yeah, you're, you're good to go. So, and the school I went to was so prestigious that everyone who was anyone in the industry was on site with you. So it wasn't like 
you needed to wait to get a reference. They were there. You just talk to them and they say, okay, come, come stage at my restaurant for a week. And these were celebrity chefs. So it was a time of my life again. I was now living in Manhattan in a lovely uh, uh, studio. Didn't have much of a nightlife, but I was in the city at 28. It was really a good time and doing what I really loved. And um, so when I finished the course and I was already staging at a hotel and I had to then apply to be to stay on permanently. Remember, this is 2008. If, just, if anything else was close enough to COVID as a crisis, it was the credit crunch. That's when things did. Everything came totally down. Yeah. Lehman Brothers went bust and the whole world shut down. Right? Yeah. And so nobody was sponsoring. They were letting people go. Hence why I stated earlier, there's there's been a pattern of near success syndrome. Now that near success syndrome is a very spiritual Christian African term. Um, you'll hear pastors or spiritual people or leaders say near success syndrome or failure at the edge of breakthrough. I can, if it's a concept that was made up, I can definitely tell you that I experienced it a couple of times over a number of years. What caused it? Okay. So my theory is it's two pronged way I'm going to say this. It could be if you're going after something that's not really part of your destiny, it just won't work. Right. And then when it's, when it's time for something to work, you barely have to make any effort and it'll fall into place. So there's that side and the whole idea of everything you want will happen. You just got to be patient. So that's that side. And then I cannot not share the fact that I came from a household that was very fictitious mm. and delved into the diabolical, mystical world a lot, my parents. Okay. So I know that because your parents, I know that in my culture, in the Nigerian culture, you as a child, uh, just a vulnerable being. Your parents can pretty much make or break your your destiny, according to what I know as a Christian, as a, a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. And so I, if, if I look at the kind of places my mom would take me to, or the kind of individuals my parents would have over for prayer, an ajo, an ajo means ritual maintenance. You know, if you're detoxing your body, right, then you take herbs and roots and teas and you exercise and you drink mm-hmm. alkaline water. So just imagine trying to detox yourself spiritually and by doing that, taking herbs and roots and offering certain sacrifices to certain things. So that's how the best way I can say without sounding crazy. So they were obsessed with this lifestyle. And unfortunately, not everyone who claims to be in touch with the divine and the supernatural, I want to say 99% tend to be quite disingenuous and underhanded and self-serving. And then when so you evil. Mm-hmm, yeah, pretty much. Okay, I'll go straight to it. Evil. And so when you're going to these places, giving data of your children, of a child, the picture of the child, the child in person, the name of the child, and you are the parent, it's safe to say they can do and undo, right? So if you have a child that's incredibly intelligent, 
driven, hardworking. And no matter what she does, nothing works. There's more to it than meets the eye. Coupled with the fact that to achieve anything at all, if she hasn't fasted and prayed like the Israelites were trying to do to part the Red Sea, nothing will nothing will work. Then there's more to it. You know, in from from what, the kind of home I come from, your foundation really counts. I hear you because I I, I also I'm a Christian, as you know. I also know of this. I've not heard it referred to as near success syndrome, but yeah, there is something. There's a stronghold somewhere that that one would identify that holds you in a position of um, no progress. And knowing this, is there any? First of all, did you confront your mom? Because from what you've shared of your dad, I um I, we can gather he's no longer with us. No, he's not. Okay. So with your mom, have you confronted her with your suspicions? I didn't have to. She kind of gave herself away because Oh dear. When you when you asked about if did anything happen after culinary school, I did meet a man who seemed to be kind and stable. So I was seeking stability and security at the time. And he seemed like just the thing at that time that I needed. And we hadn't been together for very long at all. And I took him and became pregnant with my daughter. And I, I thought, okay, I, We've had an economic crash. I'm pregnant. Like, could there be a worse time to be adding to the population? So I'm going to have to relocate and go back to England now and just figure it out. I don't have to be anywhere near my family. I wouldn't dare anyway in this condition of being unmarried. So I'll just go. I'll go and figure it out. And I had this person telling me, absolutely not. Ten years older than me. Didn't have any children. Had been married before. So I... I want to say that even though every fiber of my being told me, you know better, you don't put yourself at someone else's mercy. Mm-hmm. You met this guy, he seems nice, but you're vulnerable now. You're pregnant. He's saying that, oh my gosh, this is what I've always wanted, but is is being having a baby out of wedlock what you've always wanted? I'll take care of you. We'll be a family, but do you love him? Do you even really know him? He's saying all these things, but it's I, I, I. It's what he wants. And it's not what you want. So doing that is going to put you at his mercy. That's not good. Everything, the Holy Spirit, my inner man, the inner voice, your intuition instinct was saying it very gently at first. And then after a while, I was screaming like, this is not, you don't want to be at anyone's mercy. That's the slave existence. Don't. And I was like, okay, well, he's, I mean... Oh, okay, I just I guess I just oh, I'm confused. I guess I'll stay if I leave. Okay, well if I stay and marry this guy, I am pregnant and you know I could stay. I've never wanted to marry someone for a green card, but I'm not gonna be with him for the green cards because we're being a family now. This is I'm telling you how I talked myself into accepting his offer, mm-hmm. even though over my thinking like an airhead, as I was just saying. I could hear the the voice within saying, "Oh no, this is just not the way. 
If you choose this, you gotta live with the consequences, girl. You're on your own with this. I'm not. I'm not for this. Everything in me was like, I'm not with this. You better go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if I go home, my family. What if they kill the baby? You know, I was just really in a, a jacked up headspace. I'm literally telling you how I would sit down. And what my voice sounded like in my head, I was like, well, if I say, I don't know, I don't really, I don't, I'm not in love, but I guess I go to love. That's what, where I was, mm. literally. And then he was fine. And then by the third month of the pregnancy, just like that, I won't say he morphed. I just woke up one day and he was a monster because that's all he ever was. Because everything he was saying was, I, this is what I've always wanted. I was married for 15 years, didn't have a child. You're giving, gonna be giving me a child. I worship the ground you walk on. Besides, you get a green card. You could be here. We could be a family. What I wanted was not a thing. He didn't care. So that should have, that was the red flag. Mm. And then everything in me, the, the person you're supposed to, the one, if the one person you're supposed to trust in this world is yourself not other people. So trust, my trust in anyone was overrated, but in me, I had none of it for my, in me anyway. So everything in me was like, yeah, this is not going to work for us. Like my, my intuition was like, this is not going to work for us to go home. Mm. God will sort you out. Okay. I was like, mm, yeah, well, pregnant, my family, they're crazy, you know? So mm. after three months, when he became very abusive and controlling, physically abusive, verbally abusive, physically very controlling, financially in every way. Because he could. I've given him all the power by staying in a country, becoming illegal, because he didn't marry me, pregnant, you can't get no more vulnerable than that other than being a newborn child yourself. Mm. So I had strategically placed myself in such a spot where nothing in the situation served me at all. No way. Nothing. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Follow us on Instagram at speak podcast and you will find each episode guest has an interesting fact or picture to share with you. Let's get back to the interview. I repeat, I had strategically talked myself into putting myself in a place where it didn't serve me, my descendants, the child that was coming into the world, the God that created me and gave me life. It didn't serve none of us. That's what I did by making the choice to stay with someone and putting myself at their mercy. So how did you come in, in terms of her showing herself? My mom. So when I got, but I told her I was pregnant. Everyone told me not to. She was just like, you're such a disgrace. And uh, you've brought nothing. You've you've never brought me any joy. And I just thought, you have four kids. Only one of them has children. You're always telling my other siblings to go and just go and get some. Someone should just get you pregnant. Yeah, getting old. And then I'm 29 really, and I'm expecting, and I'm a disgrace. Okay. And she said a lot more worse things, but this is not the destruction of 
of, of my mom show. So I'm not going to go into that, but mm. it's safe to say she just cussed me out so much. I just thought, why am I even here? You know, but I should have known not to call her because this is somebody who had showed me a lot of hate since childhood. So why would I now tell her that I was procreating life when she even really wanted me to be here anyway? You know? So in, in her uttering to you, she confirmed she never wished you well? Is yeah. That okay? Yeah, because even when one thing that would give any mother joy, a mother that's hounding her other kids to have children and settle down, and then all of a sudden I'm a disgrace, you know, and especially because the women in the family do at a certain age start struggling with fertility, and I was at that age. Mm. Her response it was just like nothing short of what I don't know a demon would say. So I just thought you were they wanted you not to say anything to her anyway. So whatever. So yeah, she kind of showed herself and let me know that she was not in support of me. And so when the abuse increased, when my mom would call and I would tell her she was a very cold. And like, well, that's what you deserve. You chose to stay there, you know. But me, me again, I had put myself in a vulnerable situation where the very people I shouldn't have been calling for help, I was now calling for help. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's just what desperation is a mother of disaster. You start, you make, you make one bad choice. Then you got to reach for people, people who would rather see you dead, start asking them for help. Even if they offer you the help, extend the help you're scared to take it because you know they're crazy you know it's just it's just not I did not put myself in a good place at all and I remember being in therapy and this particular therapist was so fantastic and she said you made the choice we make the choices we make based on who we are at any given time bottom line you made the choices you made because of what you'd experienced in England. You made the choice you made because of this failure at the edge of breakthrough thing. You made the choice you made because the only other option that you'd given yourself was England and your family where, see, you could have been on the moon and had this child and ruled the world from there. But we make the choices we make based on who we are at any given time. That's literally what humanity does. And I argued with her. I was like, no. She was like, yeah. Because she was, my therapist had said to me, you can't blame yourself for making the choice. I said, but I do. Because my child has had to suffer as a result of having her in the States or having her with this person. And they're like, you made the, you, we made the choice. She just kept saying that. But I understand her now, as opposed to when I heard it 10 years, 10 years what ago. I was was it's not your fault you just made the choice i was like jesus the choice could have killed me she was like yeah people who take drugs and take it to the point where it takes their lives they make those choices based mm-hmm. on who they are right there that's what's crazy i was like oh may we never be the person to make a wrong choice then <sighs> yeah that, that that is everyone's ask of themselves. Unfortunately, not we don't all see it come through. Yeah, because yeah, he, the humanity in us all we're all prone to making mistakes. So, you had your child. Did you have a boy, a girl? I had a little girl. Oh, I had a girl. Yeah. Oh, 
And what happened after you had her? So throughout the time that I was pregnant, uh, by the seventh month into my pregnancy, I I was going to the doctors to get checkups every three weeks. And they kept, they would always ask routinely, are you being abused? Is there anything going on at home that we should know about? Mm-hmm. And initially I was like, yeah, I'm fine. He's nice. He's all right. And then finally I was like, no. And also the doctor had seen a bruise on my chin and seen a bruise on my stomach. I was probing me a bit. And then I just was honest and told them, they said, we'll refer you to our the team that handles this stuff. And so very quickly they said, well, if you want to leave, mm-hmm. there is an out. And I remember the lady saying to me, the only person that has jurisdiction over this baby is your maker and you. Mm-hmm. So she said, so you could stay here, mm-hmm. have the baby here, when the courts will then have a say in her, you and her life, or you could go home. She was saying it like that. And I was like, no, I can't go home. My my family probably tried to hurt my child. And she would say, well, you could decide to go anywhere in the world while she's yeah. in your now, or you could stay here where then you'll have to deal with the courts. Or you could go home. But I, I didn't understand. I'd never had a it child. It wasn't before. clicking. I was mm-hmm. just like, huh? Go home. Can't go home. Mm-hmm. And then so when I had my daughter, she was like, okay, so what do you want to do? So what we were working on was an escape plan because the abuse was quite bad. Once I had the baby, it got it went from being financial because I was able to work throughout the pregnancy. So I still had a bit of money to take care of myself. When I had the baby, I couldn't work. Um, he wouldn't buy food in the house. He'd just eat and come home. But by the time he'd come home, I had all kinds of food in the house. I'd mm-hmm. sorted things out. I didn't have a car, even though I had a license. I, I just, I just, I moved like a supernatural being because I was doing things that anyone in that situation would struggle to do. But I had favor. Mm-hmm. I had a secret little phone. I had friends who would come and drop things off for me. I had shelters I was calling all the time. The doctors were calling me to check on me. The church I was a member of knew what was happening. Mm-hmm. He had no clue about all this outside connection I had. So he just thought I was alone and, and, and I was at his mercy. Mm-hmm. And so on February 20th, he struck me while the baby was in my arms. And I hit back while she was in my arms. Oh, um, and ran to the bathroom and locked myself in with my phone and called the police. Prior to this, there had been other incidents where I had gone to hospital. So I had medical reports of of being hurt from the abuse. And so when the police came, they said, look, you don't have to tell us anything. You want to leave, we'll take you. And so they took me out of there and there was not a shelter. It was, it was February, so it was very cold. There had been a blizzard. So the snow was like up to my knees. So the police even get to me was like a miracle. So they said, we can't drive you anywhere right now, but can you get a friend to come pick you up for a few days while we sort out a shelter? And I was calling shelters. I went to my friend came to get me and then I called a shelter and they took me in. I was at a domestic violence shelter from February to August, six months. Wow. And my dad 
had now made contact with me when he heard that I was being abused or he was like, oh my God, I hope he didn't hurt you or the baby. And I just thought. <laughs> you, you had pretty much married him or not married him. Times you were a partner who was like yeah. him. Yeah. Mm. Times 10. Wow. And, yeah. Wow. So I, I remember at this point he was like, oh, you've had the baby. How's the baby? How are you? I was like, I'm at a shelter. And at this point, he'd become very ill, very mm. ill. He was dying. Mm. But he said, okay, I'll come to America to see you. So he came to the States and he got to see my daughter once. Wow. And he held her. And he was very emotional. He said, thank you for giving me a grandchild. I have my own grandchild now. So she was his first grandchild. And he said, okay, um, here's some money. Buy a ticket. Try and get her a passport. Because I had I had challenges getting a passport because she was obviously American. He's American. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So you can't. And I, I had made mistakes of putting his name on the birth certificate. And we weren't married. I didn't have to do that. But this is how gullible and so not clued up I was about the process of having a child and registering the birth. I didn't know what I was. I was so, I was a hot mess. Mm-hmm a hot mess. And I know that that came from coming from the household I came from because my mom was a mess, a mess. Hence why she stopped being a parent. And so how it manifested in me was just not knowing how to make choices to protect myself. And then of course my, my child, unborn child, and then my child when I had her. And so when he came to see me, he was very ill. And he held her and she was crawling. She was about uh, eight or nine months. He, he said to her, Otto, you need to come home so I can set your mom up. You can have your business in Nigeria. You'll do well making your cake. You'll do very well. And that's the last time I saw him breathing. The next time I saw him, he was on life support in Frankfurt, Germany. Then he died three months later after I arrived back in England. So I did get my daughter's passport. By divine miracle, that's the only way. I wrote to the uh, United States passport office, told them, look, the child is better off coming to England with me. If I sit here as a single mom, I'll be dependent on your benefits. You don't want that. They gave it to me. But I know it's not because of what I wrote. It's because God was like, okay, here's a passport, go. Mm-hmm. And um, I left. And by the time I left, I was I celebrated my 30th birthday in that shelter. Wow. With Otto Lauren, yeah. Wow. I have a picture of that, yeah. She was six months old when I turned 30. And I I just was grateful for life. Mm. A beautiful child. Because she's, she's, she's wonderful. So, yeah, that's how I came into 30. Yeah. Oh, heavy. That, that is, that is heavy. Thank you, Zaina. Thank you. Thank you for listening. All of us have a story to share. You can contact us at info at thespeakpodcast.com or learn more about this podcast at www.thespeakpodcast.com. I hope to welcome you on the next episode.